This is the Education Gadfly Show. I feel like that's been your New Year's resolution for as long as I could hear. <laughs> really? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Erica Green. Erica, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Erica is a national education policy reporter at the New York Times. We're so excited that she's joined us. I think her first time ever on the show. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Now, Erica, I think we may have seen somewhere that the title is Federal Education Policy Reporter at the New York Times, but I just didn't seem right because you are now reporting on so much more than federal education policy. Isn't that right? It's true. It's always been a little bit mislabeled. Yes, I covered the policy in the last four years when there was a lot to cover under the Trump administration. But even then, I always went, you know, and did my own thing and off the beaten path. And really, I just cover what I think are the most important and compelling and necessary education stories. Well, speaking of which, one of these great stories you wrote, I think it came out on Christmas Eve, really caught our eye. We want to talk about that in Ed Reform Update. All right. Well, Erica, yeah, this article that you wrote was so powerful. It was about Liberty High School in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, known as the home place of Bethlehem Steel. Rather than me try to describe it, why don't you maybe describe it? Tell us, what what is it that you saw when you went to visit Liberty High School and, and what made you want to tell the story? Yeah. I mean, so I was going to visit Liberty High School with a completely not completely different story, but very much not this story um, in mind. And I, I went to visit their wellness center. We were going to try to capture just how school districts and different schools specifically were trying to to support their students and their mental health as they were, you know, maths return this this fall. And um, and so I really went to just see this lovely wellness center with therapists and soothing pink colors and beanbag chairs and saw, see what the activity was. And really, when I sat down with the principal of Liberty Harrison Bailey, and we, you know, I had my interview with him for an hour. I mean, I just realized that it was so much bigger, that the wellness center was not the story here. The story was what it was like to run a school right now. And, you know, yes, we talked about mental health, but before long, we were talking about the labor shortages. We were talking about, you know, the gutting of mental health services in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, period, you know, beyond the school system. Um, I mean, he kind of just went, he was all over the place and his frustration was palpable. And And I asked if I could come back and he allowed that. I, <laughs> I don't know if he regrets it. Uh, so far he doesn't. But I just said, you know, this is so much bigger. I have this principal who is going to allow me to tell this story through his eyes. Before long, you know, his whole staff was on board. Um, no matter who I talked to, whether it was a teacher, an assistant principal, you know, his his staff 100% bought in, parents, students, and, be, you know, before long, I just became like a part of the school community. <laughs> um, and they were all really grateful that I was documenting all of the dynamics at play um, and that it's really, really hard to attend school, to run a school, to work in a school at this, you know, historic time. Um, so... 
that's how I came upon that story and um, forever grateful for a school community to open themselves up and be vulnerable in that way. And, and when you read the story, I mean, it just is so clear. So many kids are in crisis, right? And uh, that is showing itself in a whole variety of ways. It certainly includes kids that are acting it out, right? As kids do, you know, I mean, both this sort of, I think there was some language in there about looking almost like zombies or, you know, and then other kids where there's just been fights and blood in the hallways. I mean, what is going on out there? Yeah. I mean, the kids are angry and they will pay us in kind. And when I say us, I mean adults for what has transpired over the past 18 months. And I oh, was well, more than that now, but you know, they were, they had everything ripped from them and there was no urgency to restore it. Um, when we saw there was urgency to restore so many other sectors of, of society and, you know, yeah, the fights are bad. And, and I was really careful here. I have been covering education for 12 years now. So look, kids fight and kids are disrespectful and, and, I know what a school is like. I've been in plenty and I've written about plenty. Um, you know, one thing that really struck me was for the principal and his staff, you know, you can clean up the blood in the hallway. You can break up a fight it was really striking. And, and that's why I have the scene of him trying to pull this young man back. What was really striking is they don't know how to deal with the sheer apathy you know, he said the disrespect, the flagrant disrespect and no fear of consequences was the toughest thing for them to deal with. And he, you know, he's really, he's been a principal for 10 years. He's seen it all and he just hasn't seen anything like this. And the high school was for a school that is 2,800 students. It was very much, I'll just say it here because I have said it before. I mean, it was like being in a zombie movie, but a but a bomb could go off at any second. It was like, you know, and even our photographer, I gut check myself a lot with this story because I didn't want to overblow it or overstate or sensationalize or, you know, I was really conscientious of that. And so, but the team that went in, everybody felt it. And even, hey, the kids themselves, I think they were the most powerful voices in the story. So, you know, there's been some debate online about how we've seen stories like yours from a few other education reporters. Laura Meckler had a big one, I think, from California. There's been some that have tried to round up, you know, pointing to, of course, a mental health crisis. We have pretty good numbers about that, but also just the behavior that you witnessed. You know, I think both the apathy, but also some of the outbreaks of fighting and and, you know, the question is, can we say that this is a national crisis? In other words, do we have any way to know if Liberty High School is representative of the typical American high school? Or are these still just isolated incidents? And, you know, the, the plural of anecdote is not data. How do we think about that? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I'm a reporter, so I'm allergic to national crisis or epidemic or anything mm -hmm. that... Trend. <laughs> I think we're in one. Let me just say, I'm going to go out on a limb and story. say, it's a trend. It's I, a trend. I think we're actually, I think this is actually a national crisis. I'm going to go out on a limb. Yeah. yeah I don't know about, you know, like disruptive behavior. I don't know if, th is that a crisis? I don't know if I can say that. What I can say is this. People wrote in from all over the country after that story was published. And even on Twitter. I mean, 
for it to have come out Christmas Eve and for that many people to have read it over over even Christmas Day, it ran in print. I mean, people wrote from all over and said, I feel seen. This is what's happening in my school. I'm not in high school. I'm actually in elementary school. We experienced the same thing. Thank you so much for giving us a voice. It's good to know that we're not alone. People wrote to Dr. Bailey. I mean, the the response was tremendous. And even parents on Twitter, like, yep, you know, so people gave me a little bit of crap about the pajamas and, you know, moving sluggishly. But like, if you're a parent and you have a high schooler, you notice when your daughter doesn't get dressed up for ninth grade. I mean, mm-hmm. like, let's, let's, mm-hmm. let's be for real, right? It's high school. Yeah. It's high school. And also, you know, the school had a dress code that they actually relaxed. They just threw it out the window because why are they going to go police pajamas, right? Um, when they're just happy that the kids showed up in the first place. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it just really, really resonated. And I don't think it's isolated. I think if you look at the national data around mental health, if you look at the age groups that are causing the most alarms, it makes sense. And maybe there's a high school out there where everything is great and everything just, you know, continued from 2019. I'd love to read that story. Yeah. Just not the story that I've heard. Yeah, no. And as we've talked about on the show, I mean, these are the same, this is the same cohort of kids who also, by the way, were born into the Great Recession or not too long after that, you know, who went to kindergarten, first grade when the big budget cuts of 2013, 14 were coming in. I mean, this poor group has gotten hit by everything. And now this, of course, the worst of it all. And you know, look, you as a reporter can't comment on this, but I, I certainly am watching and curious to see if Assistant Secretary Catherine Lehman, who's you know the Assistant Secretary for Office of Civil Rights, we think that on her desk is updated guidance around discipline disparities, and you know we expect that to come out any day now. Man, I can just imagine. I mean, that depending on what that says, that could really come at a terrible time for schools just who, who might feel already so stressed out. I mean, you said Doctor Doctor Bailey, is it you know having almost daily suspension hearings. I mean, it's, it's, they're at the breaking point, you know, and, and to basically say, well, we're going to assume that you're violating civil rights, the civil rights of your kids, if you're suspending them, when you just think, I don't know what else they're supposed to do right now, how to handle this. David, you are experiencing some PTSD from your time teaching in a challenging high school. Yeah. I mean, actually, one of the things I was thinking was how hard it is actually to put myself there. I mean, it's hard to communicate to people who've never taught what it's like to teach. And it's kind of hard for me, even as someone who taught briefly, to imagine what it's like right now. You get the sense that it's different. I'm still just trying to understand, right? Like at a, at a very qualitative level, because we're all siloed, right? Listeners, I'm sitting here in my house, right? I know how my kid is doing. You know, I'm not running around looking at high schools across the country. And that's why we have reporters. What are the kids... What do you think they need, I guess, is my question. Did they articulate it? I mean, what would make them less angry? What would bring them out of their stupor? I mean, I have a sense, right? Like, I wish people were vaccinated, right? Like, I wish our schools had been open more. But that's all sort of on the how things are going wrong. I'm not quite sure what is the end product that we need to deliver somehow that would actually make a difference and sort of pull the average 15-year-old out of their funk. To some extent, my view is going to be a little skewed because... I primarily talked to seniors. The ones that I quoted were, were were mostly seniors. And honestly, guys, they just want to get out of school. They are over it. They don't, they're like, they just want to go, they want to graduate and they want to work 
and they feel like, you know, they've grown up so much over the over the course of the pandemic, they've been taking care of themselves, they've been taking care of other people. It honestly just they feel like school is a bit of a waste of time, which is wild, right? When you're a senior, you just like you're like forget prom, like whatever. Um, I'm just trying to get and and sure, there's a look, there's always a subset of students who feel a certain way about high school. High school is certainly hard, but but that's what they want. And they just or a couple of them picked up jobs, they worked full time, it you know, allowed them to get out of the house. And now school just feels like this just weight, this like ball and chain. And that's that's scary, right? And what I will also say on the discipline thing, like I don't know what I have no idea what Catherine's doing. I'm actually steering a little bit more away from federal policy this year. But I will just say, like, first of all, we know guidance is guidance is guidance and guidance. I know we're going to disagree on how much weight it has. <laughs> but, but I will point you to the moment that Dr. Bailey had the choice of kicking that kid out after we know he didn't go to school for like 60 days, right? He had the choice. He could have sent him home or he could have asked him to come back. And he made the choice that giving the young man what he wanted, which was not to be in school or in class, was not the way that he was probably going to get through to that young man. And I think those school level decisions, or they happen a lot this fall. Um, you know, we saw the school district in Oregon, and I did talk to them. Um, they just haven't appeared in a story yet. That shut down for three weeks because of the, the fights. And I did talk to them extensively. I'm like, what happened? Like, how do you cut, shut down for three weeks? How bad was it? Like, and they're like, people didn't feel safe. And, you know, that district said, everyone said, just get the kids in the building, get the kids in the building. And no one thought about what happens next. And so I think that that sentiment and frustration is definitely widespread across school systems. Well, Erica, thank you so much for the article and for coming on the show and for the great work that you do at the New York Times. Erica Green, again, a national education reporter at the New York Times. I hope you'll come on the show sometime again soon. Please invite me. I will be there. Wonderful. Thank you, Erica. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. You enjoying more of this winter weather there in Richmond? Well, I know. We're supposed to get a second storm tonight. Uh, and it was just this morning that everything melted on the driveway. So uh, yeah. we, we shall see what the second storm brings, but supposedly not as much snow. Still calling for it up there, too? Were you yeah, up? yeah. But uh, I still keep thinking about these that terrible traffic storm, traffic jam oh, on I-95 between Wasn't D.C. That crazy? and Richmond. Anybody who's ever lived in D.C. or been to DC probably has been in a traffic jam on that stretch of I-95, but not one that lasted literally 24 hours. That's right. Was that crazy? My worst I nightmare. I know. And literally. then I saw in the news, somebody got charged like, what, $800 for the Uber drive? The- <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the Uber driver had, had no sympathy. <laughs> I, that's going to get a one star for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh. But that's all you need, you know, one, one drive and you're out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, what you got for us, Amber? We have a new study out in educational evaluation and policy analysis that looks at whether offering a statewide dual credit program, what I'm going to call SDC, actually reaches a wider array of students across the achievement distribution and 
Does it help them earn college credit while completing high school? Uh, in 2012, you guys may have been aware of this, Tennessee lawmakers instituted the statewide dual credit program. It was designed to provide a new set of accelerated courses to reach students typically missed by traditional college preparatory AP courses or dual enrollment classes that are taken on college campuses and taught by professors in the state. It was designed actually to appeal to those kids who were interested in applied and technical fields and marketed as if you're interested in two-year college degrees or post-secondary tech programs, this may be the program for you. Teams of high school and college instructors designed the courses and it included a mix of mathematics, social science, and CTE content, including statistics, pre-calculus, sociology, criminal justice, plant science, and agricultural business. No GPA or course prerequisites were required for enrollment. That's kind of important. High schools were allowed to use their own judgment about students' readiness. The courses were taught in high schools by teachers who completed summer training, provided for but not paid, actually provided by the state, but not paid for by the state. And students earned college credits by passing these end-of-course exams, obviously more rigorous than some of these other dual enrollment programs you've heard about, but also a little bit more akin to AP requirements where they've got to take the exam at the end. Researchers examined data from 2009 to 2017, looked at the four years before the policy took place and four years after the launch of it. It included 324 schools across Tennessee that serve roughly 100,000 11th and 12th graders. They use OLS and school fixed effects models that compared students in the same high school. Incidentally, no data were available related to participation in dual enrollment. All right, descriptively, overall, 48% of schools offered at least one of these courses during the study period, ranging from 17 to 35% in any given year. The typical school offered just one course, so most kids took only one. By comparison, 76% of schools offered at least one AP course. Relative to the AP test takers, SDC students, more likely to be white, but less likely to be female or high achieving. The courses deemed more academic in nature, like those math courses, attracted students with higher prior academic achievement compared to the career tech focus courses that saw participation among students in the bottom 25 to middle 50% of the distribution. Uh, sociology and criminal justice courses attracted the most students of color, while students choosing agricultural business and plant science were almost entirely white. Within schools, black students were as likely to enroll in an SDC as their white peers, but less likely to enroll in an AP course. Uh, Hispanic students were as likely to enroll in both SDC and AP courses as their white peers, and offering these courses did not appear to decrease AP offerings overall. All right, now for what happened, how these kids did. Uh, student success in the courses was extremely low. For example, just 3% of SDC students passed the criminal justice exam, while mm. the highest pass rate, was this was on the plant science exam, was just 35%. Low Ooh. passing rates were key to local officials' decisions to discontinue the SDCs after a year or two, which many did. Still, many schools just reverted back to offering the traditional version of the course the next year. So it's not clear if they watered it down or they were trying to help kids prepare for this SDC version that might come later again or what. So bottom line, yes, it attracted a number of new and more diverse high schoolers into college credit-bearing classes, but most kids 
didn't pass the test and many schools jumped ship. What we don't know is whether those kids may have benefited at all later from being exposed to college courses without the credit. Uh, I know we've asked that question before, but there has been one AP study not related to this one that found harmful results, um, such as lower confidence and enrollment in less selective colleges. So bottom line, I think, is that it's hard to accelerate students who don't have a strong foundation. Well, can I tell you one of my New Year's resolutions for 2022? Uh Uh-oh, we can't wait. (laughs) No, look, it is to stop pretending that all kids can or should go to college And I know we've talked about that before. That's not a new thought. And I know that the pendulum has swung. Those of us at Fordham and in Ed Reform writ large, there was a time when we were pretty focused on college for everyone, let's admit it. We're not as focused on that anymore in our rhetoric, but in our actions, we're still pretending like all kids, you know, both should go to college and have the academic skills to do college level work. I mean, people, let's get real. We can look at the data And we know, you know, 40% of kids graduate high school ready for college. And that means that probably 40% of kids come into high school ready for that kind of college level uh, work. And yet we keep trying to get the other 60% to to do it and have success with it. And we're just surprised when it doesn't work out. So I just feel like we have not had a serious conversation, which is what should kids who do not have the academic skills for college are not going to get those academic skills because it's too late when they're 14 or 15 years old. What should they spend their teenage years doing? And guess what? It should not look anything like college prep. In in all fairness, I mean, this program was marketed for kids who were going to be in technical programs. Yeah, but I hate to say it, but they aim too high, right? I mean, if only 3% of the kids passed, I mean, they, they didn't grapple with the fact that, hey, these were not AP kids and they're not going to be ready to do, you know, what some of this college level work is, is expecting them to do because they don't have the reading and math and writing skills to do that. Right. We're all about high expectations, right? And we think high expectations are good. But then, you know, we also have research that shows that when you have a, a serious mismatch between the content that is being taught and what the mm-hmm. kids are ready for, that it basically just doesn't work, right? And so the question is, what exactly are we saying here? And honestly, I'm not sure what we're saying, right? I'm tempted to fall back on on sort of the, the notion that, you know, you want to hit the sweet spot where it's sort of at the challenge level, but not yeah. at the failure yeah. level, yeah. right? And you yeah. want to push kids to go as far as they can with, I guess, generalizable skills and then pick a specialty and hopefully one that has some enduring appeal in the market. As I'm talking, it's almost hard to believe that we, we don't get this right. It's really slippery, honestly. Um, no, it, it is slippery. It is. it is slippery. And I understand it. And look, we have a system where we say, because of some of the terrible things that happened in the past, where kids were tracked based on their race or class, we want to go so far in the other direction, where we keep the door open to the idea that there's some kid out there who gets to high school. Maybe they are way behind in reading and math and writing, but something's going to happen. They're going to be able to get their act together, academically catch up, go to college. We want to leave the door open, right? But that might be one in a hundred kids. And what's happening to the other 99 kids is that we are making them sit through a college prep program. And, and it was very telling that these courses, at the best, they could take one course that was technical in nature. And we have almost no kids that are really doing career tech in high school. We have almost every kid doing college prep and maybe a few kids doing electives in CTE. It's crazy. No other country does this. 
Well, because we're also sort of worried about at what point we ask a child or a kid to make that decision, right? Are you going to go career tech or academic? We've always fretted that. When is it tracking I them and when I are we know. making the decision for them versus they're making this decision for themselves? Right. Don't we know if we know, look, you are scoring at the 20th percentile in reading and math, you know, and your grades aren't great either. At we what know. grade? At what grade, Mike? Let's say eighth grade, ninth grade. We know. We say, look, the best case scenario is you're going to graduate from high school, right? And even mm-hmm. that's going to be a stretch, you know, so then we should ask ourselves for those kids at the 20th percentile, let's say, what's the best use of their time? And I don't think we've been willing to really ask that question, but I'm going to ask it this year. That's my New Year's resolution. <laughs> I feel like that's been your New Year's resolution for as long as I've been here, Mike. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, all right. Well, I, 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 I don't. I haven't been very effective yet. Obviously, I, this yeah, year I'm going to actually break through. Okay. All right. <laughs> what, what the answers? All right. All right. Hey, really important though, and and helpful, and glad that they went back and and studied this program. Um, yes. It, it's enlightening. All right. Yep. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.